Heavenly Father, we thank you for this revelation that you have, in fact, defeated the great adversary of your Son and your people. We praise you for this knowledge that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is the dragon slayer. And by casting Satan out of heaven and throwing him to the earth, Lord, he has made us, those who are united in Christ, dragon slayers too. I ask, Lord, for my brothers and sisters and myself this morning that you would make this teaching so clear to us that because of the victory of Christ on the cross, the one who stood accusing us of our sins has been cast out forever. And that by the power of the blood of Christ, we are truly clean. That even this hour as we've gathered in this place, those who have been saved by grace, there is no charge against us, there is no sin against us, for Christ has paid it in full and the dragon has been silenced. In light of this glorious truth, Father, I pray that you would compel us as your people to be bold in our proclamation of the dragon slayer. That you would cause us by your Spirit to live such loving, sacrificial, obedient lives that this world would see the power of the gospel in us and they too would repent and believe. We praise you, Father, for your Son doing a work that we could not do and then imparting to us that victory as well. Encourage us with this passage in Revelation 12. Encourage us, Lord, to fight well every day that we have until you bring us home or until we see you face to face. I ask, Lord, that you would be glorified during this time of preaching, that you would help me, a sinner saved by grace, faithfully preach your word, and you would help my brothers and sisters to faithfully receive it. Give them understanding and a desire in your spirit to live it out. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Dragon Slayers. That's just a really good title. I mean, it's just a good title. Uh, That's you. Christ is the Dragon Slayer, and because of his victory, he's imparted that to you, and you, his people, the church, we become Dragon Slayers as well. Now, I'm not a big movie guy, um, but I am fond at times when producers will release pictures or videos of behind-the-scenes footage. I always find them terribly intriguing, Um, and they'll do that at times for movie enthusiasts. They'll release a picture or a a deleted scene or something behind the scenes to give movie enthusiasts an idea of how directors and producers actually catch a particular shot. In the very famous movie in the Star Wars series, The Empire Strikes Back, at the end of the movie, if you remember, Luke has been injured and he had been fighting Darth Vader and he's hanging on this pole and he's hanging above this this precipice that seems to go for hundreds if not thousands of feet into nothing, into thin air. And Darth Vader had just told him that he was his father and of course he's crying out, no, 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 and then he decides to let go and he falls and he ends up being picked up by Leia and some others in the Millennium Falcon. 
Um, during the actual filming, there's a picture, a great still shot of the, of the scene, and Luke is hanging from this pole, and then below, it's not hundreds or thousands of feet, 10 feet below him are hundreds of mattresses st stacked up and piled up. And, and you see it, and you're like, hmm, kind of wrecks the whole scene of the movie. But it gives you a, a behind-the-scenes picture of how they were able to capture that shot. That's what we're going to get here in chapter 12, 13, and 14 of the book of Revelation. God is giving us behind-the-scenes pictures and visions that fill in details that we would otherwise not have. Now, thus far in our study in Revelation coming up through chapter 11, God has revealed his creation, fall, redemption, restoration story two full times. We've heard the cycle through the, um, through the seals, and then we heard it again through the seven trumpets, where God is judging and will judge the unrighteous, where God is saving and will save his people, and where the king will come what? As we saw last week, he will come and he will reign again and make all things new. And so we've seen this story, this plot line told now two times. And before we get to the third telling in the seven bowls, which will be the ultimate climax as we get to chapters 20, 21, and 22, God gives John these behind-the-scenes pictures, visions, that we might get some details on how this storyline plays out. In chapter 12, we get to see Jesus battling the dragon, who, of course, is Satan. In chapter 13, we get to see these two beasts that come out, and they aid Satan in his war against God's people. And in chapter 14, we get a glimpse of that harvest at the end of the age, souls that are redeemed in Christ who will spend eternity with the Lord and those who will be judged and condemned forever. Now, chapters 12, 13, and 14 are not chronological, so don't try to read them like that. I want you to think of behind-the-scenes pictures, little visions and images given to us to go, oh, that's how it looked. That's what it means. They're insights that we would not have if not given to us by God to John. So this morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12 in Revelation 12. And my hope is that we will get a behind-the-scenes look at Satan's attempt to, to, what? to thwart the plan of redemption to actually stop the salvation of sinful man and how Jesus has victory over Satan and because he was victorious, well, guess what? So are we. Because Jesus slayed the dragon, we too have the power to slay the dragon and enable us to live these bold, active, faithful lives. If it sounded a bit cryptic to you, then I hope to, to dismantle that a bit. It is a wonderfully encouraging passage. So let's take a behind-the-scenes look at Satan's fall and Jesus' victory by looking at three things. Number one, Satan's failed assassination attempt. Number two, Satan's failed coup. And number three, Jesus' victory for the church. Satan's failed assassination attempt, Satan's failed coup, and Jesus' victory for the church. The theme of the sermon is this, Christ silenced Satan so that you could live an exonerated life. Jesus Christ silenced the accuser so that you can live an exonerated life right now and forever and ever. All right, are you with me? <laughs> I'm not just a little excited to preach this, if you can't tell. So I'm going to try to, I'm gonna try to turn the, the steam down a little bit so I don't overwhelm you. Okay. Number one, Satan's failed assassination. So the seventh trumpet sounds. 
the seventh, that cycle of creation, fall, redemption, restoration has ended. And now there's a great sign in the heavens that John sees. Look at verse 1, Revelation 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Those 12 stars most likely represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Now our woman again, she's symbolic. It's not a real woman. It's symbolic for someone who what? Who is clothed with the sun, so she is exalted, this woman. And she has authority to rule. She has the moon under her feet and she has a crown of 12 stars on her head. And although this is contested by some, I do believe that it is relatively clear that this woman is speaking of God's people. God's people in the Old Testament prior to the coming of Christ and then God's people in the New Testament after the coming of Christ, but one people of God. The Old Testament and the New Testament identify God's people frequently as what? As his bride, as his beautiful, glorious bride. And it also identifies God's people in the Old and New Testament as his priests and kings, those placed upon the earth to rule with authority. And so I think it's really clear here that the woman is, represents God's people for all time, going back to the covenant made with Abraham and all the way up to the end when Christ comes again in glory. Here John tells us that, verse 2, that this woman is pregnant. Look at verse 2. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So the woman, God's people, Israel in this particular case, because Christ had yet to be born, was pregnant and crying out in preparation for the birth of a son. You say, well, I know who that is. I mean, I don't even have to do a a deep dive in in this chapter in Revelation. That's Christ. That's God's son. That's the long-awaited Messiah that the people of Israel waited. The Savior who would come and what? Reestablish their reign as God's people. Bring salvation to them through this new king, through the promised king that would come through Abraham and through David. And that's the son that is born here, the one that John is seeing. And then as soon as this vision, he has this of the woman, another one comes rushing in. Look at verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. So right next to the vision of the woman about to give birth, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head, on his head seven diadems of course the the dragon and this is not disputed the dragon is satan the great red dragon is satan this is the fire breathing monster who has power and authority he has horns and diadems remember horns and diadems that represents power and authority to rule in fact jesus christ in matthew and matthew in revelation 5 And in Revelation 19, he also has diadems and horns. It represents power and authority. Of course, his was divine, is divine, but not Satan's. It's not infinite power, but it is significant and it is deadly power. So we must take this dragon seriously. In fact, in Daniel chapter 7, the the ten horns represent ten earthly kings. And so most commentators agree that these horns represent Satan using kings and kingdoms and authorities to persecute God's people. And that's exactly what we saw, if you remember, in Revelation chapter 11. Remember, governments and rulers demonically influenced to persecute God's church. So not not terribly complicated. The red dragon is Satan, and he's powerful, and he has authority to persecute you. 
So he's revealed as the monster of God's people. Look at verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Most people immediately gravitate and say, oh, that was the original fall. You know, those are the demons that come down. I, I don't think it's a bad interpretation. I just don't think it's accurate. Daniel chapter 8, verse 10 He's actually, Daniel is speaking to these kings who will persecute God's people. And in, in, in Daniel 8, verse 10, he's specifically talking about the persecution of Antiochus IV. And King Antiochus IV, he was the ruler of the Seleucid Empire from 175 B.C. to 164 B.C. And he persecuted the Jews horribly during that time. So the image here is, again, the, the dragon and his tail using earthly kingdoms in, a, in the context of John's writing, that was Domitian. Remember, it was Emperor Domitian who was persecuting the seven churches in Asia Minor and the churches throughout the empire. And so this dragon is using earthly authority to not only persecute the church and has been for how long? For 2,000 years. He continues to do that. We talked about that a couple of weeks with some notable countries in the world today. But I want you to notice something else the dragon tried to do. He tried to assassinate the Christ child. Did you see that? Look at the latter part of verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman, that's God's people, that's Israel, stood before the woman who was about to give birth to the Son of God, to Jesus Christ, so that when she bore her child, he might what? Devour it. So the dragon had planned an assassination of God's Son, of the Savior, of the Christ. Now we know, you probably know this from your multiple Christmas services. We know from Matthew chapter two that the dragon worked powerfully through King Herod, did he not? I mean, that was the means by which he was gonna go after this Christ child. In Matthew chapter two, verse eight, if you remember, the Magi had come and they were talking to King Herod and Herod said to the Magi deceitfully, he said, go and search diligently for the child. The same child discussed here in Revelation 12. Go search for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may what? Come and worship him. Now we know the story. He's a liar, right? And that makes sense because his father, Satan, who's using him, is a liar too. In verse 13 of Matthew 2, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, Mary's husband, in a dream and said this, rise Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he did. Verse 16, Matthew 2. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And so the dragon used Herod in an attempt to kill the Christ child. But we know how the story plays out. The dragon failed. He was unsuccessful in killing the Christ. And that makes sense. That's exactly what God said was gonna happen in Genesis chapter three. I mean, you talk about a very early prophecy by God himself. God said what? In Genesis chapter three, after Adam and Eve had sinned against God and eaten the forbidden fruit, God lays out these curses, one on Adam, one on Eve, and then one on Satan. Listen to what he says to Satan. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and who? And the woman. God's people. You see the great ties here? Revelation 12 and Genesis 3 linked together. I will put enmity between you and the woman, God's people, and between your offspring and her offspring, between the saved and the unsaved. He, the Christ, 
shall bruise your head, meaning what? He will crush Satan's head, he will defeat the dragon, and you shall bruise his heel. You shall persecute him, and you'll persecute the church, but you will not win, you will fail. Such a story. The dragon used all his power, all his authority, all his horns, all his diadems through kings and rulers to stop the Christ from coming, but Christ came anyway. Look at verse 5. She, the woman, gave birth to a male child, that's Christ, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's what we saw last week. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And so it's really interesting here. John bypasses the entire life, suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But he doesn't need to. He needs to say, listen, this child that the dragon tried to kill is now seated upon the throne. He's at the right hand of God. He has won, and now he rules. And this is what John wants us to see, this behind-the-scenes picture for us, this one who would rule the nations, who would receive it as an inheritance, the one who would fulfill the promise made to Abraham. You see, the, the dragon, with his power, wanted to kill the Christ child because he knew. He knew if the Son of God ascended to the throne, that his rule on earth would have to end. He knew that if Christ was successful, that if he was allowed to be born, if he could live a sinless life, and if he died a sinner's death, and he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, then Satan's time was up. The dragon knew that. And so he did everything he could to kill Christ before he came in, but he failed. He failed, and Christ now rules. And therefore, his time is limited. So John's behind-the-scenes shot is clear. The dragon fails. Latter part of verse 5. Her child, Jesus, was caught up to God and to his throne, fulfilling the ministry of the cross and winning victory over Satan, sin, and death. And the result of that, my beloved, is that um, Satan now, he, he has some power, but he's already been defeated. It's only a matter of time before, as we'll see at the end of Revelation, when God comes and he takes Satan and his demons and he does what? He throws them into the lake of fire. Throws them into the lake of fire. He's already won. Look at verse 6. And the woman, that's God's people after the birth of Christ. Now this is interesting. Same woman. Same woman, Old Testament. Same woman, New Testament. Israel and the church, same group of people. I know in, in, in um, the book of Revelation, some people like to make a clear distinction between the two. That distinction is dissolved right here in chapter 12. So the same woman now, post the birth of Christ, fled into the wilderness. That woman, of course, now is the church. That's us. Fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And you say, oh, that's right. That's the time between Jesus' ascension and his coming again in glory. Right? That's, that's that period of time. That's right now. In other words, we're protected by God right now. You see, when Satan was unable to kill the Christ child, he says, all right, then I'm going to set my eyes on the church. If I couldn't kill the king, then I'll try to kill his people. And he is determined, even this very hour, to use all his power to persecute, his, to persecute us, to torment us, and to put us to death if able. He couldn't kill the Christ, so he will make Christ's people suffer. But the promise here by God is truly tender. Just like God protected and provided for his people Israel in the desert for 40 years, that same promise now rings true with the church. 
for the 1,260 days, that time period between Jesus' ascension and his coming again, God says, I will protect you, I will provide for you, I will nurture you, I will be your God, you will be my people. Such great reassurance because this is a quite terrifying story. God promises He doesn't promise that you won't be persecuted. He doesn't promise that you won't suffer. And he doesn't promise that you might not die at the hands of Satan. What he does promise is to keep you faithful to the end. That's the promise. He will protect and provide for your soul. You never ever, if you are in Christ, God promises you will never forsake Christ. No matter how much Satan or the dominions of darkness come against you. It is an answer, my beloved to Jesus' priestly prayer, high priestly prayer in John 17. This is exactly what Jesus prayed to the Father, and the Father said, yes, I will do it. Listen with all your might. Jesus said, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, speaking of the disciples. And I am coming to you, holy Father, keep them in your name. And then he says this, John 17, 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from who? From the evil one. Protect them from Satan. Don't let them forsake Christ. Don't let them leave the church because the dragon is upon them. Hold them fast. And the father said what? I will. The father said, I will keep them. He answered the son's prayer. So Satan's failure to put the Christ child to death not only spelled the dragon's demise, but it spelled for us the guarantee of success that the church will be victorious over Satan and darkness and sin because Christ has been victorious over Satan, darkness, and sin. But the question I had to ask as I was working through this is how exactly is our victory secured? How is our victory secured? If Satan is still able to persecute and engage in war against us, God's people, and, and if you are like me then you still, and you still struggle with sin and temptation and you know that the temptation that he brings to you at times is really hard. How? How can we be sure, even in our saved states, that we will make it to the end, that God's going to hold us fast? How do we know that Satan's not going to trip us up? That when I take my last breath, it will be professing Christ and not denying him? How do we know that we're really going to win because Christ won? Point number two, I pray you're still with me, Satan's failed coup. So John's attention, again, these are just fantastic visions, and I imagine he's a bit overwhelmed by them, but he gets another image in heaven. It's directed toward heaven, and he sees a battle. Look at verse 7. War in heaven. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them Satan and the demons in heaven. Now, as Christians, we we believe that major events in human history are important, that they impact our lives. We are are realists as Christians. But unlike our secular friends, we also believe that there is a spiritual realm. We believe that things are happening right now that we cannot see with our eyes or hear with our ears real creatures, real battles taking place that have a real impact on our day-to-day lives. So we believe in the reality of this realm and we believe in the reality of the supernatural realm. And John is witnessing that. This is another behind-the-scenes look 
John gazes up and he sees Michael and he sees Michael's angels waging war against the dragon Satan and his, and his demons, his fallen angels. Um, and the text implies here that Satan is angry that he couldn't kill the Christ child. And so what is he going to do? He's going he's to wage war in heaven. He's going to go after the throne itself. He's going to go after Michael and after the other angels of God. Now, Michael, if you don't know Michael, we, we were introduced to him back in Daniel chapter 10. We know him from Jude chapter 3. Or Jude 3. Um, he's the one, he is the, if you want to think of an angel who's like a commander-in-chief of God's other angels, it's Michael. He's a warrior. He battles with other angels on behalf of the glory of God. He is the commander-in-chief of God's angelic forces. And so John looks up and he sees Michael and his angels battling and defeating Satan and his demons. And the result of that defeat is what? Satan and the demons are cast down to the earth. You say, "Uh uh-oh. Yeah, that's an uh uh-oh. Look at verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down. The ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. You think that John wants to make it clear who this dragon is? Don't get confused. He says very clearly, the dragon is the devil, it is Satan, it is the deceiver of the world, it's the evil one. So there's no question who this dragon is, but what's fascinating is the result of the battle in heaven. As a result of this great battle between Michael and his angels and Satan and his demons, they are cast out, they are thrown down to the earth. You say, well, how did, how did Michael and the, the angels get victory? It was because of the work of Christ on the cross. In fact, some argue that it was during that time, it was through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that Satan and the demons were actually cast out of heaven. That's one argument for the timing of it. Look at verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come So this loud voice, to make sure we don't miss it, proclaiming this great truth that through the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, this king, this son born of the woman, the inauguration of God's kingdom had come to earth. It had come. The salvation of sinners, the power of the gospel, the authority of Jesus Christ now ruling as what? As king of kings, and Lord of Lords. It had come to earth. It had broken into this evil age. And as a result of that, Satan and his demons were cast out of heaven. In other words, the war John was witnessing was this cosmic battle between Christ and the dragon, and Christ wins. This is what John is seeing. It is the Genesis 3 act upon the cross when Satan, was his head was crushed, when he was defeated at Calvary by the seed of the woman, by Jesus Christ. Um, it, me, it meant the end of Satan's reign on earth, that he no longer ruled as he did prior to Jesus' victory. And because Satan no longer ruled as he did before Christ won the victory through the cross, it means, my beloved, that all who follow Christ are victorious too. It means that you have been exonerated. You have been exonerated. And what do I mean by that? It means that the great accuser, who is Satan, 
has no authority to make accusations against you anymore. It's such an incredible thought. Look at, look at the latter part of verse 10. He's thrown down to the earth for the accuser of our brothers, that's Satan, has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So because Satan, the accuser of God's people, was thrown down to the earth, because he was cast out of heaven, he no longer has God's ear. He has no access to God to make any accusation against God's people ever again. He used to do it day and night, but no more. The time from Genesis chapter 3 to the cross was a time of Satan accusing God's people in the throne room of God. He has been cast out, and so he can make no more accusations. Oh, my beloved, if that doesn't cause your heart to rejoice, then you're not getting what I'm saying. There's no greater, I think, Old Testament example of Satan as the accuser than in the book of Job. If you, if you know the story of the great patriarch Job, this is really early, like in the time of Abraham, um, he was considered by God to be one of the most holy men on earth. In fact, God said this of him in Job chapter 1, verse 8. I pray he could say it of us. There is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Well, Satan just happened to be in the throne room of God on that day, and he heard God say this. And he responds to God in Job chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He says, does Job, does Job fear God for no reason? He's going to accuse him. Listen. Have you not put a hedge of around him and his house and all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Here is the dragon standing in the throne room of God making accusations against Job, one of the most righteous men on earth. Did you hear the accusation? Do you hear what he was accusing Job of? He said, yeah, he may act like he's blameless and he may live as though he fears you, but they're all self-centered reasons. It's not you that he loves. It's not you that he worships. He likes the things that you give. He's using you. In fact, Satan says, do this. Turn your hand against him and I guarantee you he will curse you to your face. So God said, all right, and they went through the test. And you know what? Job won too. Job overcame the battle. Similarly, in the Old Testament, in the vision of Zechariah, of Joshua the high priest, Zechariah the prophet has this vision of Joshua the high priest about to enter the holiest of holies and there is Satan right next to him accusing him. Listen to this, Zechariah 3.1. The prophet said, I was shown Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Satan was standing there saying, how can you let this priest into your holiest of holies? He's a sinner, he's defiled. You can't let him in. You're the holy God. This is Satan jabbering in God's ear. And Satan was right. Zechariah said in Zechariah 3.3, Joshua the high priest was standing before the angel clothed with what? Filthy garments, clothed in sin. In other words, Satan's accusation against Joshua the high priest was a correct accusation. He's saying he's a sinner. He can't come into your presence. You're a holy God. You see, before the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Satan had access to God's ear. He was able to stand before God and accuse God's people when? Day and night of their sins, of our unworthiness to be saved by the Christ, of our being allowed into the throne room of a holy God as friends or citizens or sons and daughters when we are sinners. But with the coming of Christ and the kingdom of God through his death and resurrection, Satan was cast out of heaven, locked out 
of the presence of God and therefore no longer able to bring accusations, true or false, against us. For the past 2,000 years, my beloved, the accuser of our brothers and sisters in Christ has been silenced. No longer can he make an accusation against you if you're in Christ. Why? Because your sins have been paid for in full by Christ. No accusation can stand against you if you're in Christ. You have been forgiven. We are no longer guilty. We are no longer subject to punishment. We have been pardoned truly, and therefore all accusations fail. What an incredible thought, my beloved, that Satan, the great accuser, all his accusations against you in Christ's fallen deaf ears before God. He can't accuse you. The sins do not hold you. They do not bind you. Christ paid for them permanently. And that means, my beloved, listen with all your mind, all your sins, past sins, sins you're struggling with right now, those sins you will commit in the future, they have no accusatory power before the Lord. Zero accusatory power. When my boys were young, and I don't think this is unnatural, but it was not uncommon for them to get in a little scuffle and, and one was going to make an accusation against the other. Right? They would bring an, an accusation of some wrongdoing usually to my attention. And they would always do it, or they would usually do it when it was advantageous for them to do so. But it was also not uncommon for the perpetrator of the crime to come to me first and confess that sin and then be forgiven by me, their father, and set free. And once that happened, once, once the perpetrator was exonerated by me, the father, then they were, they were free to go about their day. They no longer had to worry about their brother coming along and saying, oh, you know what he did? They were free from the accuser. They were free from the accusation because they were no longer in trouble because they had been forgiven by their father. Um, it made for an awkward moment when the accuser, thinking he had something against his brother, would come after the fact and say, you know, Dad, you know what so-and-so did? I'd say, yes, I know. Your brother's already told me. He sought my forgiveness. I have forgiven him. His debt is clear. All the wind taken out of the sails of the accuser. No power, no authority, no shame. My beloved, Jesus' work on the cross took all the wind out of Satan's sails. Completely. He rendered Satan powerless to make any charge of, of any kind against any of God's elect. That means when Satan says to God, he's a liar, Christ says, yes, but I paid for his lies with my broken body. He owes no debt any longer. When Satan says of you, he's an adulterer, Christ says, yet, yes, but his adultery has been punished by the spilling of my blood. He has been pardoned perfectly. When Satan says he's an idolater, chasing after the things of this world, never satisfied, always coveting. Christ says, yes, but on the cross, I put his idolatry and his coveting to death so that he would find his joy and satisfaction in me. Every accusation that Satan makes against you falls on deaf ears before God because Jesus has paid for your sins. And if your sins are paid for, there is no accuser. There's no accusation that can be made. Now, if... The dragon has been rendered powerless at this moment to bring your sins against you because you've been forgiven and the sins have been paid for in Christ. Then I ask you, my beloved in love, what right 
do you have to live as though your sins still condemn you? What right do you have? If the great accuser has been silenced, what right do you have to live as though your sins still bind you? That you're still condemned? That you, that you maybe have gone too far, that you've crossed that unforgivable line that God no longer sees you as a son or daughter? What right do you have? You have no right to bring an accusation against yourself that Jesus paid for. If Satan was silenced, you must be silenced too in accusing yourself of sins that you have or are committing. Either your sins are paid for, listen, this is very binary, either your sins are paid for in full or they're not. And if they're paid for in full, full, there's no accusation that stands against you. Not now and not for eternity. To be pardoned by God is to be pardoned in full. It means your crimes are forgiven, your punishment is commuted, and your standing has been restored. You're what now? In Christ. You're a citizen of the kingdom. You're a son or daughter of God. That's your place. Not the accused. Rendering any and all accusations against you by Satan, yourself, or others dead on arrival, my beloved. Dead on arrival. In Christ... No sin can be used against you before God because Christ was condemned for you. On the cross, he suffered and died in your place. So the accusations that could be made that were real and the punishment that could be rendered, which was eternal damnation, they've been erased by Jesus. Erased. They don't exist anymore. He bore that. So all accusations, all sin, all guilt, all punishment, nullified, no longer applicable to you if you are in Christ because Christ paid for them in full on your behalf. He sets you free as we had a chance to sing earlier. Not as one who stands accused. You know what that feels like, right? You know that when you're guilty of an accused allegation or crime, you walk around with guilt and you walk around with fear and you walk around waiting to be punished. That's not the Christian. That cannot be you because it's been paid for by Christ. You've been exonerated to live freely in Christ for his righteousness, for his kingdom. So you can know your sins cannot condemn you because Jesus paid for them in full. The accuser has been cast out of heaven. It's the most extraordinary statement that not even Satan, the great accuser, of mankind has the authority to condemn those who are in Christ. I have one more question and I will close. Verses 11 and 12, the question is this, who has this great pardon? Who has this freedom to not be accused? In other words, who is truly set free from Satan's accusations? Last point, Jesus' victory for the church, verses 11 and 12. So we've seen one, Satan's failed assassination attempt on the Christ child. Number two, Satan's failed coup. And lastly, I want to show you the impact Jesus' victory has had on the church, has had on you. Look at verse 11 with me. And they, speaking of God's people, have conquered him, speaking of Satan. God's people have conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. So just as Jesus conquered the dragon, leading to Satan and the, and the demons being cast out of heaven, no longer able to accuse you, John reveals here that God's people 
all those who are in Christ, united in Christ, have conquered the dragon too. Not by your own strength, not by your own righteousness, not by your your upbringing, but by the blood of the Lamb and by your testimony. By the blood of the Lamb and by the testimony. Let's look at the blood of the Lamb first. How do Christians conquer Satan by the blood of the Lamb? Under the Old Covenant, you know this. Under the Old Covenant, it was clear. A blood sacrifice was required to remove a truthful accusation of sin against a sinner. If an Israelite sinned against God and that accusation was true, it required a sacrifice, it required blood in order to remove that sin. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. According to the law, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So for the truthful accusation of sin against you to be dealt with before a holy God, either you, the accused, have to die, your blood has to be spilled, or a qualified substitute has to die and their blood has to be spilled in your place. Either way, blood must be spilled if an authentic accusation of sin has been rendered against you in the throne room of God. Now we all come before God, as we know, justly accused, do we not? I mean, we know that we come before God justly accused of living lives of sin. Sins upon sins, truly sins that we cannot count. They are so numerous in the eyes of God. And all those sins, even as we had a chance to say that even the smallest sin is deserving of eternal damnation. So we all come before God justly accused. But for those who have done what? Who have taken their faith and their trust and they put it in the blood of the Lamb. They said, I know what I deserve before the throne of God. I know the accusations against me. And my beloved, if you know Christ, you know them all too well. I mean, this week was a tough week for me. I had lots of temptation. I struggled with sin this week. And I kept falling back on this truth. The blood has covered it. I am not going to be cast out. I belong to Christ. He paid for my sin in full. You have weeks like that. You have days like that. Some of us have months like that where we're struggling and struggling, we must know that we have victory over Satan and every accusation because of the blood of Christ. He has been victorious for you. His blood was shed for you. When we put our faith and our trust in him, we saw this in Revelation 7, 14. Don't forget this. They have, God's people, they have what? Washed their robes, their sin-saturated robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's how you're made clean, my beloved. That's how the accusations are wiped away. So that when you come before God into his holy throne room, into that courtroom, there's no district attorney. There's no accusation to be made. All charges have been cleared. Not because you're not guilty. Oh, you are dreadfully guilty. The district attorney turns and walks out of the courtroom because they know that Christ paid already for your penalty. Paid for it. And therefore accusations are dropped. You've been set free. Sinners saved by grace are absolved once and forever of all guilt because Jesus bore all our guilt. And this is an amazing thing, my brother. Listen, where there is no guilt, there is no accusation. And where there is no accusation, there can be no judgment. And when there is no judgment, there is no punishment. That's you in Christ. No punishment. The Christian is able to conquer Satan, the accuser, because of the all-sufficient blood of Jesus Christ spilled on your behalf.
Is it any wonder we sing to him and we praise him and we proclaim him? Is it any wonder that such a savior would do such an amazing thing for accused sinners like you and me? But John says something else here that I really caught me by a surprise. We're not only, the accusations are diminished, they're, they're taken away because of the blood. But look at verse 11 again. And they, God's people, have conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. You say, wait a minute. What, what does that mean? The word of testimony is the life lived free of accusation. Right? The blood of Christ cleanses us. We are set free from the accusation of all sin. And then the life that we live is that freedom from all guilt and judgment and punishment. It is the life of the believer poured out for the sake of Christ. You see, when the blood of the Lamb washes us white as snow, we will no longer want to live as the world lives. When you've been born again and you've been cleansed by the power of the blood of Jesus, you will no longer love your life. So what does that mean? You'll no longer love the life that you want apart from Christ. You won't live for money. You won't live for fame or success or the pleasures of this world. That won't drive you any longer. Rather, your life will be a living testimony to the transformative power of the gospel. You will live for Christ as a living testimony. You see, the heart captivated by Christ will declare Christ. If your heart is captured by Christ, you will proclaim Jesus. The heart captivated by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ will also die to itself It'll say, not me, Lord, but you. Not my will, but your will. Not my purpose, but your purpose. Not even my desire, Lord. I have all these plans, all these things I want to do, all these things I want to accomplish. I'm going to submit them to the cross and bring them before you, and you tell me what you want me to do. That's the testimony that John is talking about here in Revelation 12. A heart truly captured by Jesus Christ. In other words, our lives will become living testimonies of what? Our victory over Satan and our submission to Jesus. Our lives will become living testimonies that we have, in fact, conquered Satan, sin, and death because of the blood of Christ, and now we have submitted our lives to Christ. That will be your life. Not just something you say, not just something you do, but of who you are, living as Christ lived, Loving as Christ loved, serving and sacrificing as Christ served and sacrificed. It's this newness of life that declares to the world that in fact you have been born again. This is your living testimony. So I'm going to ask you, is that you? I mean, is that you, my beloved? Regardless of how long you have professed to know Jesus, Does your life reflect that you've conquered Satan? Do you live as though you are free of all accusations of sin? Do you live like that? Not just sing it, but live like it. Does your profession of faith, your true trust in the blood of the Lamb, compel you to live like the Lamb? Your life, your testimony, your love, your service, your sacrifice in the midst of persecution because you have, in fact, been born again. Let's make it even simpler than that. Is God able to say of you what he said of Job? Can he say of you there is none like him or her on earth? 
a blameless and upright man or woman who fears God and turns away from evil. Is that you? Is that you? That you are living an honoring life because your heart has been captured by God. I mean, you, you really changed. You're not religious. You're a, a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. Your desires are now God's desires. Your purposes are now his purposes, regardless of, of what that means. The consequences are, are, are costly. We know that. You proclaim Christ. You live as a Christian. You live in obedience to the law at home, at work, in your neighborhood. And guess what? The dragon and the dominions of darkness will come against you and they will persecute you, guaranteed. But is your heart so captured by Christ that it does not matter to you? It does not matter. Look at verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So if in fact... The dragon, Satan, and the demons were cast out of heaven when Christ was victorious on the cross. And for the past 2,000 years, the dragon's been here making a mess or trying to make a mess of the church, trying to make a mess of your life. Um, heaven rejoiced, but not the earth. Woe to the earth for the, the, um, the temper of the dragon was not reduced. He was unsuccessful in killing of the Christ child, and he was unsuccessful in his coup in heaven. Therefore what? With whatever time he has, and he knows it's limited, he's gonna do everything he can to bring wrath and persecution and suffering and death if possible to God's people. He's angry. He's like that wounded animal that's bleeding out. He knows his days are numbered, but he will continue to thrash and bite and sting as long as he can. Pouring out, John says here, his great wrath upon the church, upon God's people. He's gonna try to afflict, try to persecute, and try to put to death. Which means what? Your captured heart in Christ that proclaims the gospel and lives for Jesus will not be easy. That's why we're told to count the cost before we come to a saving grace. It's not going to be easy. It's not just the world that comes against you, and it's not just your flesh and the temptation of the flesh. It's Satan. It's the dragon and his demons that are coming against you trying to get you to slip up trying to get you to turn away from Jesus. So how do you remain faithful in the midst of that behind the screen shot? If you know at this very moment that the dragon is working to derail you and his demons, that's a daunting thought. If, if you're taking it seriously, like, oh, oh okay, um, I don't know that I like that. I'm gonna give you three in close how we remain faithful in our testimony to God when the devil rages against you. Three real simple ones that are all from the text. Number one, you must remind yourself, listen, daily, if necessary, that Satan lost. You have to remind yourself of that. He failed. He tried to kill the Christ, he failed. He tried to keep Christ from going to the cross and ascending to the throne, he failed. He failed in every capacity and therefore he was thrown out of heaven, and therefore every accusation against you does not stand. He has no real power against you. Do you know that, my beloved? That this, this monstrous, fire-breathing dragon? Well, I mean, think about it. If he leaves you alone, what? If he leaves you alone, then you can pursue Christ unfettered. How glorious. If he tempts you to sin, you say, oh, it doesn't matter. God always provides a way out. If he persecutes you, 
You say, oh, well, I know Paul said, Romans chapter five, that the persecution, the suffering, it produces perseverance, and the perseverance, character, and character, hope, and hope does not put me to shame. Bring the persecution. It'll be good for me in Christ. You say, well, what, if, what if he kills me, Pastor? What if he takes your life? That tail sweeps down and takes the life of so many. Well, if he takes your life, you get to be with Christ. Right? If Christ is your life, your heart is for Jesus. You get to be with Christ. You get to be with the angels. You get to be with the God, the Father, and the Spirit. You get to be with the saints victorious throughout the centuries. In that great, glorious, eternal, divine party that's happening right now, you get to join that. It's so wonderful for you to die in Christ. It truly is gain beyond measure. Now, if that's true, he leaves you alone, he tempts you, he persecutes you, he puts you to death, and it's all good for you, then he has no power over you. He's lost. Even in your life, he is lost because you've been united with Christ. He cannot hurt you. Remind yourself of that daily if necessary. Number two, when Satan does come against you in his great wrath, remember what God said here in verse six. He will provide and protect you. You're not alone in this. Look at verse six again. The woman, that's the church, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished by God for 1,260 days. You're not required to be tempted, persecuted, and potentially put to death alone. God is with you. The salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have come to earth. It's broken into this evil age. My beloved, you, if you're in Christ, you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If you're in Christ, you have the word of God to stand on. You have daily access to God through prayer. And if you're in Christ and you're a member of a church, then you have the body of Christ. And it's fascinating because this is all written to God's people, to the body of Christ, not individuals. And just as God cared for his people Israel in the desert for 40 years, he promises during this time between Jesus' resurrection and his coming again to protect us, his people. There's protection in the body of Christ. There's nourishment in the body of Christ. That's why being an isolated Christian is not only counter the word of God, it's just downright stupid. You're gonna get picked off. You're supposed to be in the body of Christ, cared for, nurtured by his people. So one, Satan cannot hurt you. Two, God promises to provide and protect for you. And I'll give you this last one. And I will close, I promise. You must remember daily if necessary, you have right now in your possession eternal life. You have it. John the Apostle, in a letter he wrote earlier, 1 John chapter 5, John said this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have what? Finish it. That you may know that you have eternal life. You have it already. It's not something that you're just going to get upon your death. You have eternal life right now in Christ. You have God, right? That's what, that's what Christ said that eternal life was. It's knowing God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You have that, being united to Jesus. Your end is glory and joy in God. This simple truth means, my beloved, that you don't have to love the world. You don't have to love your own life. As it says in verse 11, that life to live for comfort or entertainment or success. If eternal life is truly yours now and it cannot be taken away, if no accusation can stand against you right now and therefore eternal life is yours forever, then you can hold 
and be bold in the proclamation of the gospel, regardless of how difficult it may make your life here on earth. You can live for Christ in this life. You can die to your personal dreams, your personal comforts, your personal successes. So you can do what? So you can sacrifice and serve and live as Christ lived. Because you have eternal life. When you love eternal life more than you love this life, you will take the discomfort and the persecution and the potential death that following Christ brings. When you love eternal life more than you love this life, you will say, I will be bold and walk in faith. And you, when you do this joyfully, because that's your heart, that's what you want to do, then God will say of you, before Satan, before the world, in his court, he will say of you, as he said of Job, there is no one like you on earth, blameless and upright, man or woman, one who fears God and turns away from evil. Don't you want that statement from God about you? I do. It's possible. Christ has been Christ has defeated Satan. Your accusations, the accusations against you do not stand. You can walk in freedom today. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this glorious truth in Revelation 12. We rejoice in Satan being destroyed, that you cast him out of heaven, and he's here now, Father, and we get that, that he will try to bring persecution and suffering and even death, but his days are numbered. We, we look forward to that day, Lord, when you throw him and all of his demons into that lake of fire. Until then, Father, I pray you would make us strong. Give us great strength to live boldly for Christ. We know the blood of the Lamb has cleansed us. We know that sin has no power over us. And in light of that truth, Father, in the context of this beautiful church, I pray we would boldly proclaim Christ and we would live obedient lives that the world might see our good deeds, and indeed give you glory and honor. Father, bring this rather cryptic passage to bear on our hearts and minds. Make it simple for us to understand, and by your Spirit, I pray, live out. I ask this for your glory, that you would use this church in such a magnificent way to bring the gospel to this lost community. We ask these things, Father, for the name of your Son as well. Amen.